Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty good at the violin, but I'm not great. And it took me 20 years and cost my parents tens of thousands of dollars. And this is just crazy. This is absolutely crazy. One in two people on earth picks up an instrument at some point. So that's 4 billion people over the next 30 years. 4 billion people are going to pick up an instrument. And guess how many of those people are actually going to do what they want to do with that instrument? There's this massive gap between the passion and the motivation that goes into learning and then the end result. That's, that's the gap that's always interested me, and that's what we're attacking. We think this is an accessibility gap. We also think this is caused by age-old classism uh, in the community. And there's just a lot of barriers that we can break down to allow people not only to, to start learning, but also to, to keep with it once, once they start learning. Uh, so we're just trying to provide an education that works for the common person. That was Sam Walder, co-founder and CEO of Trala. And this is Musical Therapy. We're your hosts, John and Grace, and we're here to talk about being a musician in a world that is changing fast AF. So fast, we don't know what day it is anymore. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Is it Sunday? Monday? It's Monday? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Someone emailed me earlier this week. They sent an email on Tuesday that they had originally planned to send Friday the previous week. I got that email Tuesday morning and it led with Happy Friday, Grace. And I just was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's so mean. It threw off the rest of my week. So, yes, I have not known what day it is since Tuesday, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had a great conversation with Sam. Like we mentioned, he is the CEO of Trala, which is a company whose flagship product, their app, teaches you how to play the violin. And it is the violin learning app it's on true. the interwebs. I tried to look up other ones. All I found was tuners. I think it's the only thing out there that is anything like it. And... Before you, you know, react really negatively to this idea of learning an instrument over an app. Yeah, I know all of you just sort of shuddered when you heard <laughs> app. I, I, I felt it. <laughs> like, think about how cost prohibitive it can be to learn an instrument through the, I guess, quote unquote, traditional way. Oh, John, can we do some math right now? Yeah, let's talk about how expensive it is to learn an instrument as a kid. So... If we take out our calculators here, let's say we are studying for, what, 10 years, 12 years? 10. Okay, 10 years. And where we live in Austin, weekly lessons probably average around $80 an hour. I know that can vary a lot based on where you are in the country. So we get to, over the course of 10 years, that's over $40,000 in tuition. That's a lot of money, y'all. Just as a comparison, that is... One year of college at a private institution in America, sans um, room and board. <laughs> yeah, it's probably more now. I feel like my gauge of college tuition rates. Oh, is I'm sure about it's a lot more than outdated. that. But yeah, you're right. It doesn't include other costs like the cost of an instrument. Yeah, going to summer camp, youth orchestra tuition, group class, strings, sheet music. It's expensive and. The reality is this isn't realistic for a lot of families doing things, quote unquote, the right way. And so if you're telling people the only way they can learn an instrument is through these traditional methods, you're excluding a whole lot of people. And this was also brought to our attention this week with a post from the uh, Texas Music Educators Association convention that went viral to slide from a, not a even getting started. I literally started screaming to the abyss as soon as I saw this. John was just like, what is even <laughs> happening? And, and you know, I, look, I wasn't screaming from shock. I was screaming because I was angry. Um, we'll, we'll tell you what he said, this guy. The truth is what this guy said is... I mean, he's just not the only person who feels this way. He just got caught. So he just made a fool of himself and someone exposed him for the terrible person that he is. And here's here's what he said. He gave this whole presentation on how to choose the right students. And some of the criteria that he believes in is that the right student has intelligence and socioeconomic status 
and a stable home. And, you know, you see the slide and you're just like, oh my God. And it gets worse. Yeah, I didn't even see this <laughs> next part at first with some of the sub points here for things like stable home. And keep in mind, this is what we're saying. Every bassoonist should have this. If you're going to invest your time teaching somebody, they need to have a stable home. So you should really be considering the following things. I kid you not, we're, we're reading from the presentation. And here. you can find this all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. People yeah, it's have out been there. talking about it. So do they live in an apartment or a house? Are they buying or renting? Do they move often? Are lessons a possibility, both from a financial perspective and from a mobility perspective? I mean, we're screening here to make sure that our bassoon students, in this case, are upper middle class and have wealthy, stable households. And we're saying that if you don't have these characteristics, we shouldn't waste time teaching you. For sure. And I mean, this is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. This is so, I mean... I'm trying to remember who this guy is. I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that it's a white dude. And once again, we can talk about how dangerous white male mediocrity is in America. <laughs> this is a, a prime example of it. And I mean, this guy even was just like, find smart kids, strong in math and reading comprehension. Basically, this guy's going to like be screening someone's SAT scores before he even yeah. takes them into their studio. Picture in your head who you're talking about here. We all know what this is getting at. So besides how disgusting this is, the other side that... I can't help but think of is how many people feel that classical music is this dying or endangered art form that we can't get enough people interested in what we have to offer. Orchestras are going out of business and can't sell enough tickets even pre-pandemic, never mind what they're dealing with now. And look, if you are starting from a place that the only people who can learn to pick up an instrument, have to check all these boxes and have to come from a certain background, you are slamming the door in the faces of your future audience members. Yes, you are literally shutting people out and saying you do not belong. So you cannot cry boo-hoo about classical music if you are literally saying this is not for you because of x y and z that just is not it and this is why people feel so excluded from classical music it's because they literally do not see themselves in it and we are actually out here and you know i say we it's like you know john and i aren't out here and i'm sure some of you listeners are not out here saying this but the truth is there are people in our community who are actually out there saying this is not for you if you don't have enough money this is not for you if you do not live in a stable home this is not for you if you are not white or asian even you know yeah so we've got some work to do yes we do a classical music community and if you are someone who's maybe interested in doing that work and based on the conversation you're about to hear, if you're intrigued about the way that Trala is tackling some of these problems of access and making music education affordable, then good news, they're hiring. And if you're a violinist out there who is looking for work, you're underemployed, Hint, hint, Grace. No, just kidding. Grace I am not us. underemployed, sir. <laughs> you better watch what you're saying. There's about to be a left hook straight to your head coming right at you when you least expect it. <laughs> just kidding. We can edit that part out. But if you are someone who's been... Too in- late. You already put that out into the universe. It is staying. Y'all, facts. John just came at me. And this is just... This is the hill that you've decided to die on. And you are not going to win. <laughs> no, but if this sounds interesting to you, they are hiring violin teachers. I think if I were a violinist looking for work right now... I would be really, really interested in that opportunity. It involves teaching. It involves some other skills that you might need to have as well to help build out 
their platform and make it as effective as possible. So Sam describes a little bit about that in our interview. We'll also drop a link in the show notes too. But can't wait for you all to hear this. Uh, Again, thank you so much for the support, the messages you've been writing us from these first few weeks, first few episodes we've put out. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, uh, write us a review, give us five stars if you feel so inclined. Follow us on Spotify, and we'll be dropping these every Monday going forward. Yeah, and also follow us on Instagram if you want to keep up with what we have going on, see some beautiful quotes from our guests, and, I don't know, drop John some hate because he fired some shots just now. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I'm going to go hide, but without further ado, (laughs) here is Sam Walder of Super pumped to chat with Sam Walder, who is the CEO of Trolla, which is, I was just doing a little digging in the iTunes store. Is this the only violin playing app, Sam? Like you look at piano apps and there's a million of them, but I couldn't find any competition that you have, which is uh, is probably a cool thing, right? It's it's a hard product to make. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's probably a reason for that too, but I think this is going to be really a fun talk. Grace has done some work with you in the past, recording some videos. We know you all are up to all sorts of exciting stuff in the world of of virtual learning. So let's um, maybe circle back to your background for folks who don't know you, and then we'll move towards you know talking about everything that you all are up to at Trolla now and sort of the direction that it's going. So are you someone who is like a primarily from a music background and then you became an entrepreneur or you from an entrepreneurial background you also happen to play the violin what's what's your background and skill set like it's it's both uh so the answer is yes Uh, i've been playing violin since i was a little kid i started when i was four i was super jealous of my older brother um so we come from i don't think it's a musical family but we have kind of like a a bluegrass um vein in our blood and so my dad plays a bunch of bluegrass instruments and that's kind of what we grew up on um got to take some traditional uh violin lessons as well so kind of explored both of those but was also very lucky to be introduced to science and technology pretty early on as well um so i started working in science labs uh, when i was 15 and got to explore that more in college. So I did computer engineering at the University of Illinois and then was also doing a bunch of stuff in violin. So Trala kind of became the combination of of these two disciplines. That's awesome. Um, something, Grace, you and I have talked about with a lot of guests on this podcast is like developing different skill sets to sort of combine with our musical backgrounds to make yourself more valuable, more interesting. So that's uh, just another case in point there, I think, with with Sam and your background. Uh, Where did this idea of starting a a violin lesson application come from? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty good at the violin, but I'm not great. And it took me 20 years and cost my parents tens of thousands of dollars. And this is just crazy. This is absolutely crazy. One in two people on earth picks up an instrument at some point. So that's 4 billion people over the next 30 years. 4 billion people are going to pick up an instrument. That's a really big addressable market. (laughs) And guess how many of those people are actually going to do what they want to do with that instrument? Not many, right? Exactly. There's this massive gap between the passion and the motivation that goes into learning and then the end result. That's that's the gap that's always interested me and that's what we're attacking. We think this is an accessibility gap. We also think this is caused by age-old classism uh, in the community and uh, there's just a lot of barriers that we can break down to allow people not only to to start learning but also to, to keep with it once, once they start learning. Uh, so we're just trying to provide an education that works for the common person. That's so refreshing to hear. I know there was a point when I was still teaching music full-time and things like that. I got really into 
uh, the Suzuki method and teacher training and, you know, began to have these great results from my students and I was so proud of it. And then I sort of looked and was like, okay, so who, who am I reaching? And when I looked at the families that could afford the rates I was charging and were having success with that method, it was like not only upper middle class and upper class predominantly white and then sometimes Asian families, but it was also families with, you know, one stay-at-home parent mm -hmm. who could be fully available to nurture their kids' musical needs. Right. And it it was just, it was really difficult because I would have students that maybe didn't fit that mold and oftentimes they would they would struggle and I would hold them up to this, this sort of standard and say like, well, if you really want to do this, this is how it, how it should be done. And this is how you get the best results. And uh, it took me a couple of years of sort of thinking like, why am I maybe not feeling as fulfilled with this as I, as I wish I was. And I think that that was maybe the core reason was just that, you know, we want to think as teachers we're we're helping people or bring out the best of people. But I think in, in classical music tradition, uh, it's, it almost feels like it's built for people of a really specific, you know, socioeconomic group. And if you're not in those circumstances, you're sort of out of luck. So right. it's, I mean, is the goal to build an army of Hillary Hans and Janine Jansen's and Joshua Bell's, or are we just trying to put instruments in the hands of kids everywhere? And that's, that's the question I've been actually asking myself a bunch this, like the last few months. You know, I think it's, it's a very simple answer to this. I think it's up to them to decide. We, we should trust our students. We should trust them to, uh, you know, make, make a plan for themselves and have dreams. And we're there to support their dreams. If they want to become the next Joshua Bell, then let's provide that for them. And if they're willing to work for that, then you know, we're going to work just as hard as them to make sure that happens. If what they want to do is play at church, we're going to help them do that. I think, you know, we don't, we don't need to decide for them. And I think it's part of this like sort of paternalistic attitude towards our students, mm -hmm. which it turns a lot of people off from it and also keeps adults from learning as well. That's a really good point. And, you know, as we think a lot about access and equity and making music education, you know, both equal and accessible to everybody, no matter who you are, whatever age you are, what your background is. How much of that responsibility is like on teachers to decide, hey, I am going to take you no matter what your aspirations are, you know? And that's kind of been my biggest struggle that I've been really mulling over the last few months is, am I really for accessible and equitable music education if I'm not taking everybody who wants to come through the door? That's a great question. I mean, proof's in the pudding, right? Mm -hmm. It's as John said, you just literally look at the students that you're teaching. Um, and obviously there's ways to support more accessible music education without taking those people on as, as private students, because that, and you know, that's one of the reasons we're making this as a distributed technology platform instead of an in-person studio mm -hmm. um, is because there's some things you can do with tech at scale, which by, by the nature of it, make it more accessible, which you can't do as an individual teacher. So I don't think you need to put the burden on yourself of that, but I don't know who knows. Maybe there's teachers who are doing some sort of model where uh, you s subsidize other students lessons. Like if you have a studio of 40, you know, you, put your price up by 10% and then you can take on four scholarship students. I don't know. Right. I'm sure there's models that can be explored there. Yeah, sure. I think there are people trying to, you know, do their part and approach that problem on a small level. But like you said, to do it at scale, you need another kind of solution, uh, but beyond just the, the lesson studio. Right. So you mentioned you have, was it 6,000 students as part of Charlotte users? That's amazing. What, what do those students look like? What's the age range or where in the world are they? What does your, your user base look like? Yeah. And it's good that you're saying user versus students. So we have students, not users. That's very important to cool. us. We use that sort of <laughs> nomenclature. Um, I'm going to give you the cop-out answer. We're for everyone. So we have students <laughs> in 120 plus countries. Um, they're ages 7 to 75. Um, they're all over the place. 
and that's kind of the beauty of it. Uh, I would say the majority of our students are um, kind of younger, I would say, but it's it's very widely distributed. It's very widely distributed. So we've got a lot of people in their 40s and 50s. We have a lot of people who are parents using it with their 10-year-old kids. We don't have many like four-year-olds and five-year-olds. Trial is not good for those students. Um, But as soon as you hit kind of like 11, 12 years old, that's when it starts working really well. That's cool. And I'm so glad to hear that it's a young user base. You know, I think the thing that really turns people off to learning through an app and why so many teachers get sort of up in arms about it is that they feel like it's a cop out. You know, when you asked me about working on the app for the first time, that was what was going through my head. And I thought really long and hard about it. I kept asking myself, am I stealing work from people? And thought, well, I guess not. But, you know, that just is the connotation that's there with the territory. You know, people feel like, the information is not going to be good or it's going to be wrong and that it's not professional and that you're stealing work and that it undervalues teachers for all the time and energy that they've put into their own training and into their education. And those are all the things I was trying to balance in my head. And I, you know, kept asking myself, do I do it Do I, or do I not? And then it kind of hit me. I was like, man, Grace, if you really do believe that music education needs to be both accessible and equitable to everybody and want to offer the best information possible to as many people on the planet, this is the way to do it. So why not do it, you know? I'm glad you put that much thought into it because some people just want to make a buck, right? They think about it as a gift. <laughs> but th- those aren't the people that, that really work out as teachers. So that's, right. that's really amazing that you were that thoughtful there. And yes, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, think about our students like Hanya from uh, – she's from the Middle East. Um, and sh- she was born with a disability, um, can't move her left arm. She can't twist it. Teachers would not <clears throat> accept her. Like literally teachers would just say, Hey, no, you, this isn't going to work out. You should sing. And she said, I don't want to sing. The violin's my <laughs> instrument. Right. And Trala was there to be like, Hey, we'll help you. And she joins all of our group classes. She's doing private lessons uh, with one of our, our instructors and she's practicing so much. And to the point that she's like cheerleading other students. So we've got incredible. this community and there's people who are saying, oh, I don't feel like practicing today. And she'll type out this like paragraphs long <laughs> message about, I want you to just get your violin out of your case and hug it and just feel the beautiful <laughs> one. Like that, it's that type of thing. Uh, I like, love it. This is a person who's doing good in the world and bringing joy to others because she was given a chance and she fought for that, right? There's a, a student, Brian Lips, um, who is a truck driver long haul truck driver. You can't show up to a, you know, your weekly lesson and and do that. Like your schedule is just different. There are so many people who don't fit into our stable suburban idea of what a mm-hmm. music student is. That is actually the majority of people. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. And those are people that who we're serving. That's that's so that's so cool and and from my perspective too with Grace, she did like toil over that decision as a teacher who you know at that point is running a really serious high-level private studio and there's this connotation about self-taught students and learning to play right. over youtube and it's the scary thing and we should never do it i mean like my teaching was really taken off at this point you know i was getting asked to do all these clinics and workshops and guest teaching people were starting to notice my work which is great and i was like well if i jump on this project what does it do to me you know does um, this devalue yeah That was the big question. Does it devalue me? And I talked to my Suzuki mentor about it, and he just was like, well, Grace, someone is going to be on this app. It could be you, and you could be offering some really valuable information and pedagogy and teaching that people would not otherwise have access to. It's going to be made available to so many more people, or you could not do it, and someone else can do it and offer maybe some not as good information. I was like, fair point. So I guess I'm going to do it. And we're glad for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's one of the things that struck me when I started doing a lot of like teacher training and things like that is that there's, there's good information out there, and there's people who have studied teaching string instruments that you, you know you don't even really get that information honestly when you go to college for music oh not at all um it's not sort of at all. held in the in these certain communities of people who really specialize in like teaching kids at a high level 
And there's no reason why that information shouldn't be out there and be accessible to everybody. I think you look at, you know, colleges who are putting curriculums online uh, for people to, to, you know, explore at their, at their own will. And it does seem like there's some of these barriers to entry where, uh, historically, you've just needed to be in the studio of one of those people to have access to some of that knowledge. But we're, we're really hitting a, a day and age when that should be readily available to everybody, and we'd all be better off for it. Exactly. You can't, in the same breath, try and gatekeep music to the majority of people and say that you're uh, forwarding music itself. That like these these two yeah. things cannot coexist. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. So let's talk a little bit about starting Trolley. You said you've had this idea for a long time. You had these backgrounds in in um, technology, in music. What did it look like in the early days? Was it just you or did you put a small team together? How'd you get off the ground? Gosh, it was, um, it was my college roommate, Vish, and myself. And the two of us had... Uh, we love doing these things called hackathons, which is basically like a coding competition. You just build a product in like 48 hours and you pitch it to people. And we had figured out, we were really good at these. We'd figured out how to win like any of these. So we just fly <laughs> around the country and like do these hackathons, have a blast, build some cool product and win a bunch of money. And we did this like four or five times. We thought this is great, right? We're like, how can we do this forever? And we say, hey, let's just build a product. And we are seeing all these people who are building, you know, other startups. And we weren't really into that. I hated the startup community. Um, I hated all these people who just wanted to do it just to do it. And we thought, let's let's do something that really like makes an impact in some corner of the world. And the one of the big things was I was working uh, with my, my thesis advisor was a guy named Lippold Hawken, um, who's this extraordinary man. He uh, invents instruments. He teaches all this stuff with signal processing. And I took his class and he totally changed my life with this class and, and taught me all these algorithms and all this stuff. And um, he was like, I, I think without Lippold, probably Trolla wouldn't have existed because at the time we started, we said, we need to have this technology that listens to people play their real instruments and gives them real-time feedback. That was the first feature we said. You need to be able to, if you're learning on your own, you need to have real-time feedback. This was not possible at the time, especially with the phone processor speeds, what they were in 2016, 2017. We were starting on Android phones and literally people were saying, this is impossible. You can't do this. And so the first couple of years were us just working on the signal processing, just coding every single day between classes, after class. Wow. Um, that was like two years <laughs> and then and then it worked then we That's got awesome. it working was did it work because of breakthroughs you made in the code you're writing or in um the, the hardware getting better uh it was i mean we had to invent some new things in the algorithms now it's great that the the hardware is there so we can do it with other instruments and whatnot so the expansion is possible um but yeah i mean it, it was just like a lot of tinkering with with code and then we got to start adding curriculum. And actually, we, we made Trolla for intermediate and advanced uh, musicians at first. We thought, hey, here's people who maybe they learned when they were a kid and then they wanted to keep it up when they were like in college or after college. Um, but then all these people kept downloading our app and asking us very basic things. Mm. Like we had a search bar for songs. So you could search for different pieces and exercises. And people would search things like how to hold the bow. Mm. I think, oh, wait, what? <laughs> There's all these people who are downloading this app who are trying to learn violin through the app. And we thought, this is brilliant. Uh, the, these are exactly the people who have the, the highest pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's go, let's hard pivot and let's just do that. And it's every every time we focus on uh, the be- beginners, um, good things happen to us. Yeah. So what does it look like? You know, turning this from an idea, you, you and your friend are, are doing this in your spare time, into a business with with generating revenue, with getting funding. How do you get from those days in in college or on the side to to where you are now, a few years later? Yeah, I think there's two main things. First, we were monetized from the beginning. 
Trollo was a paid product from day one. We were not giving this away for free. We knew we were doing something of value and it was it was a subscription from day one. And actually the price hasn't really changed in, in the last couple of years at all. Um, I think, so that, that was really important. So we said, this is going to be a revenue generating business. Um, the second part is uh, I, the, the University of Illinois has a, a yearly pitch competition um, and we happened to win it. Uh, when I was a senior and that gave us some money. We we're able to get into this accelerator program that gave, gave us some money that gave us just enough money to kind of work on it for eight more months. And then we got into something called Techstars, which is like a, excel, another accelerator gave us some more money coming out of Techstars. We were able to raise uh, our first round of, of actual financing. So it just kind of compounded on itself and, you know, it was partially because we were showing revenue growth and partially because we were just pitching like a great vision. Uh, people like that. People want to see it happen in the world. And so I think that's why they, why they funded it. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Does that answer the question? Yeah, um, I think, I think so. I mean, what's, it, it seems, I think that answer, it, it does answer the question in the sense of like, okay, how do you get your next round of funding? How do you, you know, hire your team or pay your bills? What what are some of the challenges along that road though? Like it 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 sounds almost too easy when you put it that way. You know, you go, <laughs> oh, this really gave me some more money, and then yeah, it was super easy. And we got some more um, users, and then made some more money. No nah, man, we were working so hard. I mean, every time we get into a program, we would the day of the program you know, Vish and I would circle up. And if we had anybody else working with us, maybe it was interns, maybe just hopping on, we'd say, Hey, we're going to be the first ones in here and we're going to be the last ones out of here. Are we all cool about that? And everybody said, yes, that that's going to be us. We're going to, we're going to have to work harder than everybody else because our product is just way more difficult to build. Like think about the user experience of a violin learning app. You're holding this delicate piece of wood between your jaw and your shoulder and you're making sounds that you don't like, and you're doing this all for the first time, and you're interacting with a new piece of software. This is not trivial stuff. Um, so we just knew that we needed to put in a lot more work. And we're not we're not like product geniuses either. We don't have any experience. So we just needed a lot of iteration. Um, so I don't think we took many days off. And I don't like to glorify that because that can be really destructive to people. But that is the literal truth for us. We just worked really hard. And we still work super hard. Everybody on the Trolla team is putting in immense amounts of, of effort these days. How big is the team now? There are, I think we we're 13 full-time. Wow, and you guys are awesome. still growing too. We are. We're, um, we're hiring for a couple roles. Nice. Anything you uh, you want to plug? Yeah, actually. Um, so all of our roles are on trala.com slash careers. Um, trala.com, so T-R-A-L-A. And we're hiring for uh, a couple violinist roles, actually. So literally hiring violin teachers part-time and full-time um, to, to teach our students, um, group classes and private classes. And then we're hiring a user experience designer, so UI UX. And then if you're a good engineer, we will always want to have a conversation. Nice. <laughs> so what does it look like now? You mentioned you're hiring violin teachers and you're sort of starting these, this studio um, approach to it. So tell us a little bit more about the, the direction that's all headed with the blending in the live instruction component. Yes. So on the axis from practice tool to music school, we are shifting pretty strongly towards music school. Uh, we want to build out the community elements. We have a vision where people can be in a studio of people who are very much like them. So if you are a left-handed student, you can be in a studio just with other left-handed students because <laughs> you have unique challenges there. If you're in a certain time zone, we can pair you with other students in that time zone or age group or interest in a certain genre. We can have groups of students that are that want to become the next Joshua Bell, right? And then we can have other students who just want to jam, right? All these people can coexist in the same community and that's what you can do at scale. And then this can also be a place for teachers to uh, learn how to be a better teacher. For sure. So professional development opportunities there. You're going to be working with some pretty top violinists 
as we expand instruments, we're going to look at the interplay between different instruments. And uh, I mean, there's just this whole, we are thinking, you know, those um, music camps like Blue Lake or Interlochen. Yeah. We kind of want to do that, but all the time. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> we just have a bunch of people who love music, who get to play with one another, make ensembles. There's a lot of room for cross collaboration. Um, and there's just a bunch of people who love music in the same community. That's incredible. How many teachers do you guys have right now? Uh, I think we have seven or eight, wow. and we're trying to hire about 10 more. Wow. So how does it work from the student's perspective? Is it Are there different pricing tiers? You know, we were talking earlier about sort of the access, the affordability. Does that change when you bring in live instruction? Yes. So there's a couple things we're trying to do. The first is we're starting out with just one price point. So we're not trying to have a bunch of different tiers. We're, we're at a very simple level right now. It's $35 for a 30 minute lesson. Um, something we're looking into is the subsidization of lessons. So we have scholarship students. We already have scholarship students on Trala um, and that's subsidized by other people's subscription costs. $1 of each lesson is going to go towards subsidizing somebody else's lesson. So we're going to have full scholarship students that are kind of supported by the community. That's awesome. Um, we're also looking into doing a tutor system where let's say you're a student like James Eek, who practices for four hours a day, has been using Trala for a year. He knows everything back and forth. Um, he can tutor other students. He can make some some money there. So we're not sure exactly what it's going to be like. It's 15 bucks, probably something like that. But you can actually monetize if you're a really good student. You can make some some cash and you can help other students. So and that's like the the peak affordability there. That's great. Yeah. That's such a unique way of approaching that problem that we were talking about before with with this just being so prohibitive for for so many people. So that's really cool. Where does okay one one thing I've I forgot to ask earlier the early days where does the name come from Oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's just like tra la 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 <laughs> I, I told John that and he, he didn't really buy it and <laughs> <laughs> it's like no there's not a story <laughs> Is it the kind of thing where I, is this a startup world thing? You, you you don't want to name yourself something so specific that it doesn't allow you flexibility. Like, Dude, I name was, was 21 when I started this company. I don't know. What. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Love it. So you mentioned getting other instruments on the app. What's what's the what's the dream for one year, three years yeah. from now? Are you going to be able to learn? anything through this or let me give you the 10-year dream first the 10-year dream, dream cool. is whatever you want to learn whatever instrument it is if you want to learn the freaking bagpipes <laughs> we got you we got oh you. my gosh and there's gonna be a whole community of people who love the bagpipes and are just so excited to welcome you into that community um if you want to learn i mean there's there's so many instruments yeah. out there holy cow it doesn't it's not just band and orchestra i mean there's thousands and thousands of amazing instruments and we're going to try and re like resurface some of them you know the ukulele like people weren't people didn't know what the ukulele was 50 60 years ago this is a new instrument in in american culture at least i feel like everyone's picking that up right yeah. now like especially during court like pandemic times everyone's like this is my new jam right here yeah People, the kalimba, like that's another one. Now suddenly everybody. That too. I keep seeing right? Instagram ads. They're like, you want one of these. And I'm like, I do? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful sound. It's super simple. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we want to do that. We're thinking of even the 15 year dream is we're commissioning new instruments. Oh. Whoa. My, talk a little bit more about that. Mind, mind blown. <laughs> I think that people are super creative. There's a lot of people, maybe on Kickstarter, they want to make a new instrument. We want to help them do that. And we can partner with them to have a student base of people. If you want to sell this instrument, if somebody's going to buy a new instrument, what's the first thing they're going to do with it? They're going to learn how to play it, mm -hmm. right? So that's where we come in. And that's where you build the community out from scratch as well. So that's that's kind of like the 15-year vision is not only are we um, teaching any instrument that, that you want, 
but also we're kind of supporting innovation in the music world itself. That's awesome. Can't wait to see what like new space age instruments going to come out in 15 years. I hope years. we get I'm there. So that, would be, that would be great. For <laughs> this is all still just, you know, a vision. What's the biggest, what's the, you talked about sort of the challenges up until now, the hours that you all put in, the, the, just the sheer difficulty of what, what that technology has to do. What's the biggest challenge that you're facing right now? Right now, a lot of it is operational logistics. So scale, uh, onboarding 10 or 20 new violin teachers in two months, training them up on the Trollo method, making sure that they are supported and that their students are supported is a lot, right? Yeah. Normally you do this over the course of years if you're building out a music school and we're trying to do this very quickly. And we want to do it at a high level of quality, which is why we're hiring teachers full-time instead of having it be contractors. Uh, we want this to be, you know, the quality of the, of the, the programming is the success of the company. For sure. Um, so it's, it's a massive logistical thing. And our, our VP of operations, Eric joined full-time a month and a half ago. He was a trial student. Oh, wow. Um, so he's the first trial student who we've hired. Yes. And now he's, he's kind of our first executive hire and he's basically just doing all of that. And he's, uh, he's a force. Like he understands the problem so deeply because he was a student. That's crazy. That's awesome. Super cool. So how, what would it look like being a full-time trollet teacher? I'm trying to wrap my head around that because most people who teach private lessons, you know, it's something, even if you make a full-time income from that career, you know, you're maybe working 20 hours a week or something. And then you, you know, you're practicing or you play gigs on the side, but what is the full-time job as for anyone listening to this who's uh polishing up their resume tell us about that uh what you envision that role looking like yes so i would say yeah a third of your time is spent actually teaching private lessons and group lessons Uh, another third of the time is spent working on the curriculum we're still building out a bunch of curriculum right now so you'd have a voice in the actual things that get taught um I mean, there's so many other things to be doing, training other teachers, sitting in on other lessons, helping out with the operational side of things, making sure that your students are supported. We're making a song book right now. Like there's all sorts of projects that we're working on to kind of support this community. Um, and it all goes together. So the idea for, for having full-time teachers is that, you know, we give them as many students as, as is reasonable to have over the course of a week, but then the rest of your time is spent um, kind of building out the the holistic program itself. I mean, it depends on wh- what your skills are. If you're really good at video editing, like we'll have you editing videos. If if you're good at shooting videos, like we're going to set you up with a uh, a remote kit at home, and you can actually shoot curriculum videos. If you're good at composing music, you're going to put music into our songs page, right? Things like that. Nice. So there's some flexibility there based on skill set. That's awesome. Like that. That's super exciting. I mean, yeah. I think my big question is has to do with kind of the thing that I was sort of hemming and hawing about before I came to Chicago the other year to like start recording some lessons for y'all. How do you get people to buy in? Because I think a lot of people, and maybe the pandemic has actually changed this, but I still think a lot of people hear the word app and they're like, Mm-mm, that's not, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have anything to do with it because they're so stuck on the idea of things being live in person, having this real connection and not just being automated, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'll say if, if you're stuck on the word app, you're probably not a fit, right? Like <laughs> if, if you've heard everything else I said about making music education accessible to every single person on earth and the word app is the thing that's sticking in your mind, then it's, it's probably like, it's probably not going to work out and that's fine. Right. There's a lot of ways to do this. Um, but for, I mean, it's a, the, the teachers that we have generally believe in this more like utopian vision of what music should be like. So they're, they're more interested in the community aspect of things. Um, our head of marketing we just hired, she was working at a non-for-profit music school. 
with a with an accessibility mission as well. So it's like a lot of these people are coming together from disparate parts of the music community to kind of build something together. And we're, we're, we get to do this from scratch, right? So developing curriculum from scratch, things like that. Um, some people are really into that. Nice. What What are the principles that guide your curriculum? Because like you mentioned, you have people who are really young, people who are really old. Um, in my, with my work background now, you know, I like Grace, I taught a bunch of cello students for a long time. I went to music school and things like that, but I've sort of transitioned the past couple of years into corporate world learning and development. So now I teach adults and only recently had my mind blown when I learned the difference between pedagogy and andragogy. Now, these are two different yeah. things. And like, I, <laughs> I didn't even know as a musician, I knew this word pedagogy, but knowing that it comes derives from like teaching children versus andragogy, teaching adults. How do you build a set curriculum that's for everyone? Well, it needs to be evolving, right? I think one of the problems with previous methods and curricula is that they you write it and then you publish it in a physical book and you send it out and then you do a new copy every 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. That's not how education works, right? I'm sure, Grace, you're iterating on the way you're teaching students constantly, right? You're learning new things about oh, how yeah. to teach, right? <laughs> so how crazy is it that the methods and the curriculum that we're, we're teaching off of are static? Not only static, but sometimes haven't changed in like 70, 80, 100 years. Right. So that's, that's kind of like principle number one is this is a, this is a living method. Um, and principle number two is that we're here to serve the students, the student is not here to serve some philosophical idea of what music is. We're here to serve the student mm. and, and their their needs. And a lot of it just flows from that. We have a whole document called the trial method, um, which kind of expounds <laughs> on this. And uh, but but that's kind of like the, the core underpinnings of it. I love the second part too, because when I think of Isn't that interesting, John? Well, yeah, like, what music it's education so, looks it's like everything about current conservatory training is literally the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, you like become here, a technician, not a musician. Yeah, we're here right. to learn this revered art form this very specific way and this is how it's done and if it doesn't fit with the modern age or it doesn't fit with you that's your problem it's sort of the um, yeah the philosophy that seems to come so flipping it around around where your student is your north star is a whole lot different yeah we're really inspired do you two know anything about japanese tea ceremony no, I feel tell like us I've about seen it. it like on Queer Eye or something <laughs> when they went to Japan or something. Probably, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of this like austere like art form uh, that's been around. It's it basically it's this like one thousand year, maybe seven or eight hundred years old art form, uh, which is a very very detailed method of of kind of serving tea to somebody and through that it, it's not just about making the tea obviously it's a whole lifestyle and people who are into this they live their entire life through this kind of way way of life um and then this kind of came to the western world and everybody sat on mats like tatami mats on on their knees um when they're doing tea ceremony in japan and then when they brought that over to the western world there's this big exhibition where i think they're it was like Australia or something like that. Like the grand tea master came and um, uh, was, was going to teach everybody about tea. And he noticed, Oh my gosh, these people sit in chairs. And so what did he do? Right. Was he going to change up a 700 year old tradition and make a new method? Hell yeah. Let's evolve. Let's make this so that everybody feels welcome. And so they made an entirely new kind of form of tea ceremony, which involves sitting <laughs> in a chair. And it wasn't, we weren't bound to tradition because this is the way it's done. But yeah, um, turns out we can sit in chairs. And this is like, by the way, okay. one of the most intense, intense art forms in the wow. world. And they were, they were willing to do it because it's all about serving. That's like a lot for me to process. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty long tangent. <laughs> really good. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I think there's like a lot of teaching that kind of like follows this idea of like, how can I, um, you know, how can I use my expertise to like really help people? But I think that really actually gets lost sometimes. It's just like, how can you fit into like what I do? 
is sometimes what it sort of evolves into over time. And we kind of lose sight of like, wait, how can I actually use what I have to actually serve and help other people and make the world better? There's this phrase, this is actually one of, I think one of the things we had a lot of difficulty with at Trala was those phrase, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. I think for the longest time we, you know, you talked about being stuck on the word app. Like we were stuck on the word app, but in the wrong way. Because we wanted this to be fully distributed. Mm. We wanted to just be a practice tool. And then we realized, gosh, like that's just not going to cut it. Right. We're not going to be able to provide world-class education to people that way. And so if we're just focusing on the problem, can we teach students as, as well as possible, then we had to kind of set that notion aside. And I think on the opposite side, coming from like the, the intense classical world, sometimes it's like fall in love with the problem, not the solution with teaching. If the solution is like this one specific method or this one set of repertoire, then again, you're, you're, you're not necessarily teaching in, in a way which makes sense for most of your students. And again, for some students, it works great. Some people love this stuff and it's super valid, but it's just one way. Yeah, you're right. It is just one way. You know, I've taken so much teacher training over the years and I hear all the time, there are many different ways to do this and they're all great. But, and that literally just says to me, uh, no, you don't think that they're great, that there really is only one way to do it. So I sometimes struggle with that. But what I love about what you guys are doing is that you are putting us all one step closer towards putting an instrument into every single kid's hand and offer them a high quality music education, you know, have them enjoy it for what it is, be creative, learn the importance of learning a new skill, being bad at something, sticking with it and getting good at something, learn about music that they might not have necessarily been exposed to. And you're trying to scale that for your company, which is beautiful, but I want to know how do we scale that in the music industry at large? How do we scale that with teachers across the world? Because I feel like we've come really far away from this, you know? I feel like now we're in a situation where we only take ourselves seriously and only take people seriously if they are at top tier level of playing. Like, how do we do that? That's such a good question. I think it's different for the classical world and the non-classical world, right? In the classical world, technical skill is everything, or it's almost everything. Mm. It's it's weight. It, there's like the spectrum, and it's weighted really much towards that. But in other genres, that's not always the case. So I think other genres have maybe moved on, and they've they're they're looking at other parts of musicality other than technical skill. Um, so I love the collaborations that are happening there. I love uh, P.J. Morton's album Gumbo. Oh, it's so uh, good. The live version. <laughs> oh my gosh! And they had the the Matt Jones Orchestra there. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's like a, a wonderful collaborate. I mean, to be fair, everybody there is super technically oh, proficient. Sure. <laughs> like, um, Those are all top notch players in the industry. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about that? That other genres don't really care about this as much. And I think actually I chose the worst possible example because gospel and R&B are, have an immense amount of technical skill. Oh, for sure. You know, I don't really know if I buy that, though. I think about all of the musicians that I know who are in the non-classical sector and they hold themselves to the highest artistic standard that they feel like they can be at at any given time, especially if they're going to be putting their name on it. Uh, It's tricky. Well, maybe that's what the music industry is going to be like when you're actually performing music, and that's a great thing. But... If you're a musician, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in the music industry and you're selling your music and you're performing in a paid context. Most of our students, I would call them musicians because they're playing with their family. They're doing this as uh, something in their community. They're playing at church. Um, And that's fine, right? You don't need to be in the music industry if you're a musician. I love that. You know, I think that is something that a lot of people are really fixated and stuck on. I don't know about you, John, but I think a lot of people would say that if you're not making money off of this, you know, and I know a lot of musicians who throw people shade 
when they're like, oh, I'm a musician, but I have a day job. Right? Sure. And you know what? <laughs> Why can't the rape of these coexist? Right. Because they're like, oh, you're not a real musician if you have to have a day job yeah, it's to just pay your bills. Like, you exactly. don't need to gatekeeping. And it's a. It's an identity crisis I struggled with when I left music full time and got a day job. It's like, what does this mean about me? But, you know, I think that maybe the time is right for the perspective to start to change on this, because we're in this moment when people, even with the best education and so much background in classical music, are not working and orchestras are furloughed and concerts aren't happening and any form of music making like you said sam you don't have to be a a professional musician and right now we're all playing at home or for friends (laughs) or immediately family so you know we're i i think that the perspective is going to change and i think the perspective is going to change for people going to college and studying this too where maybe there isn't this expectation that if I get this degree, I'm going to you know, be in a symphony orchestra. That will be my full-time job, my only way that I make money. And I think when that perspective changes to maybe people become a little bit more accepting of these other forms of education, because we don't have a false idea anymore that following a certain set of steps in really rigid classical tradition is going to lead to this career outcome and we can kind of separate that career path from just being a musician and from enjoying that and i think it's it's high time that we kind of get over that fact because the reality is is it's it's just not very practical to make a living doing this for a lot of people so if we stop holding that as the goal and we stop telling ourselves that this is the only way or the best way, the only valid method to becoming a musician, maybe we become a lot more open-minded to learning in an online community like Trala and telling people, you know, whatever that solution is where you can find joy and find that connection with, with music and with community that that is good enough. And that's every bit as good. And you are every bit as much of a musician it doesn't really matter uh, where you started, but if you're here and you're practicing every day and you're trying to get better, like, damn it, you're a musician. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not any, you're not any less of one than someone who has uh, shelled out tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on your education. So I feel like this could be the time that maybe people start to come around and something. Good God, I hope so. I mean, I hate to say it, and this will probably make some people mad, but truth moment, I think a lot of people who are teaching right now are insanely out of touch. I'm sorry, but it's true. You know, I think we still are trying to define success as a musician as making a full-time income through performing or teaching or whatever it is, you know? And we're saying that people have to be doing this at a high level, whatever that means, playing a certain kind of gig, and I'm sorry, but that's just not it. And I will add, I, I love everything that the two of you are saying. This is like poetry. And I'll add, if we also shift that mindset, we can then become more comfortable with the very intense classical training because that is really good for you. Building that discipline, it, that that changes your life. If you're able to have that sort of training, and we can say there's a benefit to it. And you can take that, and I want you to be practicing and and having this dedication in all forms of your life. It's an art form. It's a way of life. And if if we kind of understand that as one of the main goals of that discipline for some of our students versus getting a job or performing or becoming a full-time, like, you know, gigging musician, then we get to appreciate it even more for what it is. Because instead of our all, most of our students failing, most of our students succeed. Right. Let's let's change the goalposts. What yes. a thought. You know, I was talking to a student of mine about this. And John, I think you were trying to gnaw your way through a bag of tortilla chips or something while this conversation was happening. But, you know, a little backstory on this kid. He is a high school senior, and he just finished auditioning for music colleges. And he's waiting on some results, and, you know, he has some good options for himself. 
and he told me, I'm trying to figure out what the next step is. Do you feel like if I go here, I'm going to have a better chance? And I just was telling him, kid, I could send you anywhere. I could send you at some of the best colleges in the country, and I still cannot make a guarantee, you know? And I can't guarantee anything because it's ultimately up to you how you use your time and how you make the most of your education. The honest truth is that nothing would make me happier than seeing you thrive. So that's where we are going to send you. We are going to send you to the place where you can become the best version of yourself, whatever that is. You know, 10 years from now, I want you to be the kind of adults I want to be friends with. You know, the kind of adult who's making a difference in his community and really helping people that's what really matters and that's what I want for him and you know it's tough because I feel like we as teachers have come a really far away from that and we really need to get back to that place it's there waiting for us that's it it's very simple it's very simple like we can get back to this and and I think the world is waiting for us to get back to it and I think like the discipline that we all love, the classical music discipline is going to flourish as soon as we do that. Because people are going to keep playing, you know, and they're going to keep loving that music as well. And more people are going to be introduced to it. So I think that's, you know, people talk about, oh, classical music is you going this way or that way. It's, yeah, it's because we've lost our bearings. I think so. And I think that's why people, I mean, the word relevance comes up a lot, I think, in these conversations. And honestly, I don't really know that it has anything to do with relevance. I think it has more to do with people being shut out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard to be the professional classical musician that complains about, you know, orchestras don't pay enough, we don't sell enough tickets, our audiences are aging, but at the same time have this really high barrier to entry of how you can even learn about this art form and get interested. That's how you're going to build your audiences for the future too, is having more people that understand this art form and appreciate it. Well, Sam, this has been a ton of fun. And I think for me, really inspiring that maybe there is hope for musical education long-term. You know, I've sort of been down on this field for the past few years as, as it, it just seems so difficult to get into, but it's so exciting what you all are doing. So we have a few sort of lightning round final questions for you, but first <laughs> where, where they can connect with you with download the app or learn more about, you know, the team members you're adding violin teachers. We've got a lot of people listening to this who are teachers, musicians, things like that, who this could. Yeah. Where can people find a job? <laughs> since really job. <laughs> well, let's, let's start with that. There's a couple things. First of all, if you're interested in, in checking out the app, just search violin on the app store um, or search trawl on the app store. That wasn't supposed to be a flex. No, it was totally a flex. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're interested in uh, working with us, go to trawl.com. There's a careers page and you can reach out that way. Um, my email is sam at trawl.com. So you can always just reach out directly as well. All right. Um, you know, a lot of, CEOs are famously readers and learners. Yeah, what is the last book that you've read? Um, I'm reading President Obama's new book right now, nice. which I'm loving. Uh, nice. Yeah. Beautiful. Nice. Um, and then what is the worst advice you've ever received? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> Gosh, the the advice that I give myself, that's the worst advice. I think I, I can always do a better job of listening to other people's advice. Thanks. Mm. I, don't, I don't think I have, a, <laughs> I have a real answer to this. There's some of some people who I know who it's like people told them to like shut down their companies when now they're like a $50 million company. Yeah. So yeah. that's not us. And finally, since we've been talking so much about music and fostering appreciation for the art form, what are you listening to right now just for your own enjoyment? Um, I've been listening to a lot of old funk nice. lately. Uh, that just wakes me up. I love that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned gumbo that's been on repeat so for a while. 
That's such such a good album. And been listening to Yeba lately as well. Um, so that's kind of my my current love it. Yeah, my current playlist. Well, Sam, thank you so much for chatting with Grace and I. It's awesome to catch up with you, hear about the exciting things that you all are doing at Trollum. And we'll keep an eye on you. You know, we'll have to have you back on when you're expanding into other instruments and scaling yeah. out. And I can't Waiting wait for to that see bagpipe edition. <laughs> yeah, when you get bagpipe, uh, let me know because <laughs> I'm going to buy some. Yeah. So, sorry, Grace. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're really good interviewers. This has been a great conversation, so I really appreciate it. And we talked about all this stuff, like moving forward in music and the fact that you're having us on, uh, that, you know, that's part of it. That means a lot to me. Absolutely. And, you know, like John said earlier, I definitely feel more hopeful about the future of learning and the future of music education. And I hope that people everywhere, especially teachers, take this conversation to heart and really dig deep and ask, do we need to keep asking kids to figure out how to fit into our mold? Or do we need to actually figure out how to help kids see that they do belong in the space and how do we use this to make the world better? I love that. This concludes this week's session of Musical Therapy. Thanks again for joining us. If you liked what you heard, follow us on Spotify and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can even say some nice things about us in a review. If you have any questions slide into our dms on instagram at musical therapy pod hit us up and while you're there go follow the trolla app at trolla app t-r-a-l-a-a-p-p look up those job postings on the interwebs on their website and go download the app if you're interested in picking up the instrument we'll see you next week